baptism had nothing to do with sin. In the Jewish culture, baptism always meant to identify with something. When a woman became... Oh, it's not on? Sorry. my church, I just, they just turn it off because they don't want to hear me singing anyway. <laughs> so Jesus had just been baptized. As I was saying, baptism is a mode of identifying with something. And baptism happened in all circumstances, all kinds of circumstances in the Jewish culture. When a woman became engaged, she was then baptized. A symbol of the fact that she was leaving behind her old life and identifying with her husband as his wife from then on. When a man entered into the priesthood at the age of 30 or soon after that, he was baptized as a symbol that he no longer was identifying with his old life. That was washed away, and he was identifying with the priesthood that he was a priest of God for the rest of his life. In Acts, when Peter is speaking to those that crucified Jesus, and it says that they were stricken in their heart that they realized they had actually killed the king of kings, they said, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. And people think that that means that you had to repent and get wet in a tank of water. That is not what it meant. What he was saying is the very one that you rejected and killed, you must change the way you think about him and now identify with him. The baptism of Jesus Christ was not because he was sinful. The baptism of Jesus Christ was not because he had to begin some kind of new life out of sin. The baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist was because he was about to begin his priesthood. And for the rest of eternity, Jesus Christ is going to be recognized as our great high priest. Amen? We know that that's who he is. We know that he is serving in that capacity now and will serve in that capacity forever. There is one mediator between man and God, even the man Christ Jesus. And that's what a priest is, a mediator between sinful men and holy God. When Christ died on the cross, we don't need a priesthood anymore. Because of his death, when we accept him as Savior, our sins are gone. We stand before our Heavenly Father as his child now. And this is the beginning of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Immediately after he was baptized, he began to call men to him as his disciples. Now, he didn't call them all at once. He called them as he encountered them. So at 30, beginning his priesthood, he is now authorized, you might say, to do miracles for the sake of his priestly function. Therefore, it is highly significant to us to see what the first miracle he did was. What was his first action to show his priestly function? And what significance does that have? Because I suggest to you that being the first one, there is a doctrine that is called the doctrine of first mention, that theologians use. Being his first miracle, it has great significance to us. It certainly did to his disciples. It made them believe in him. This is the miracle that we're going to look at in our narrative this morning in John chapter 2. And we're going to see the very reason that God was incarnated, the reason that he came to save mankind. What is it that God desires for mankind through their salvation? This is what we're going to see. Look with me. Chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. May I reword that a little bit for you so that we can see how it was in the Greek? It literally says, and Jesus was called and his disciples both or also were called. The calling was to Jesus, but when he showed up with his disciples, of course they were welcomed in. Verse 3, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. May I say that it actually, the Greek words are pistuo ice. His disciples believed into him. They accepted what was said of him, that this was the Son of God, the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. Now, Lord, we ask that you would teach us. Teach us truth, even as we look at this great event that took place, an event that presages of an event that foreshadows all the glory that God would give to us through our great high priest. Teach us, we ask, Father, and we'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. As often happens in Seattle, on a certain day, a thick bank of fog came in. This fog can get very high. Sometimes it goes all the way up to the needle and surrounds the needle and goes even higher. Well, it just so happened on a certain day when something like this had happened that there was a helicopter that was flying into Seattle. As the fog rose up and enveloped the helicopter, unfortunately, there was also an electrical malfunction within the helicopter that disabled all of the aircraft's navigation and all of their communication equipment. It's a pretty difficult thing. Due to the extreme haze, the pilot had no way of determining where exactly the airport was or where other buildings were around him. As he was flying very slowly trying to figure out what to do, he recognized that there was a building in front of him. And he thought maybe they could help him find out where he was. So the helicopter went very close to the building. And of course the people in the building all ran to the windows to see this. What's this pilot doing? What's going on? And he hastily wrote out a very large sign, and he held it up to the chopper window, and it said, Where am I? Immediately, he saw the people in the building jump into action. They pulled out paper, they started writing a sign, and they held it up to the window, and he said back to him, You are in a helicopter. <laughs> the pilot smiled, immediately took off in a certain direction. After going so long, he punched down through the fog and was able to land safely at the airport. Now his co-pilot was a little rattled by this whole thing and he said to him, how in the world did that sign help you figure out where we needed to go? And the pilot answered him and he said, as soon as I saw the sign I knew it had to be the Microsoft building. He said, 
like any computer company's help staff, they gave me a technically correct but completely useless answer. <laughs> but he was able to get from that sign what he needed to understand how to be safe. That's how signs work. And they don't always convey the exact message the way we think it ought to, but they certainly convey a message. It's important for us to understand. I remember reading of a museum. Uh, it was in a castle in England, and this museum had open displays that people could walk around in. But the problem was, despite the fact that on every display there was a little sign that said, please do not touch, the people kept touching it, sitting in it, soiling expensive, priceless antiques and linens and everything. The museum staff had a meeting. They said, we've got to stop this. We don't know what to do. How are we going to stop it? One of the junior curators said, listen, I'll stop it tomorrow in one day. And they said, you're going to stop it in one day? He said, I absolutely will. So that night, he went around, and everywhere that there was a sign that said, please do not touch, he exchanged it with a sign that said, caution, make sure you wash your hands after touching. In that sense, nobody would touch it anymore. <laughs> nobody wants to think that there's some kind of danger to it, that I've got to wash my hands, and the problem was solved. And I say all of that to bring out again that signs are used to convey truth, to bring about an understanding of a situation. And that's exactly what we have in our scripture this morning, a sign that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples. Now, in order to fully understand what we mean by this portion of scripture, we have to understand verse 11. So look there with me, because once we grasp verse 11, we will have a better grip on verses 1 through 10. Verse 11 says, The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Fistuo ice believed into him. So this was the beginning of the miracles. I need you to understand that there are, are actually four words that are translated miracle in our English Bible. The first one is the word erga. It means works. It, it, it's done as a, as a messianic service. We use that in our modern English. If you have a chair that is ergonomically correct, that means it works correctly for your spine and the way you sit. Sometimes if you use the computer a lot, you have to get an ergonomic keyboard. It means it works correctly with your hands so that you don't get carpal tunnel or something like that. The second word in the Greek that is often translated miracle is the word dunamos. Sometimes it's translated as powers because that's what it means. Something that is wrought by a divine power to show that the person that is doing it has the, the blessing of God in their life. And by the way, Alfred Noble used this word when he created this thing called that, that was so explosive that, that was the, the, the afterrunner of dynamite. It, it, it was called dynamite because of this word dunamis. It's also what the Holy Spirit power is called. The Holy Spirit is a dunamis. He is a great power. Next is the word wonders, translated often miracles. It's the Greek word tarata. And in the Latin, it's miracula, which is where we get our English word miraculous. It is events that are fitted to elicit wonder or awe. And then finally, it's the word samion, which means signs. A sign is an indication, a token, a revelation of some truth through the symbolism of an outward act. That is the word that is used in our text today. 
That's why I want to hone in on this word, Samion. It was not just a miracle. It was a sign. It meant something. It showed forth some truth through the symbolism of an outward act that was not known before. It is extremely significant that the first miracle that Christ did in his priestly function was a sign of who and what his priestly function was. It sets the stage, if you will, for all of eternity. This is who he is. This is what his ministry is all about. And this is the sign that brings it out and makes it clear and makes it understood. This is his first miracle. And verse 11 also says that it manifested his glory. What in the world does that mean? How does changing water to wine manifest the glory of God? Well, if you were to turn back to chapter 1, look there with me. You're in chapter 2. Just go to chapter 1. There John defines for us what the glory of God is. Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is no greater statement that you need to understand in life than grace and truth. Back in Exodus 34, when Jehovah God came down on the mountain and gave to Moses the Ten Commandments, he introduced himself first. I am the Lord, the Lord God. And he spoke of his attributes. And then he said, full of grace and truth. And when he did, the Bible says that Moses hasted and bowed his head to the ground. Sorry. Grace and truth. In the Old Testament, it's hesed and emeth. Understand what that means. The truth of God is that the soul that sinneth, it will die. That there is a sin debt that must be paid by every person that has sinned. And that sin, that rebellion against God is so great that it is eternal separation from God. When the law was given, there was no way around that. That's what the law teaches us, that we can't keep it and that therefore we're sinners. For God to be just, for God to be holy, every sinner must be condemned. There is a penalty for sin and it must be paid. But grace says... No matter what, I'm going to forgive your sin. Grace literally means unmerited favor. God gave to us favor that we didn't deserve. Okay, so if you give me favor, then you're not being truthful because we don't deserve the favor. So how can you stay true to holiness and truth and still show grace and truth? Well, let me show you because it's explained to us just a little bit further. You're in chapter 1. Look at verse 17. For the law was given by Moses. The word given is didomai. He offered it over to them. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The word came there is genomai. It means it came into existence. The way that God can be holy and yet still be merciful is because of Jesus Christ. And this is the glory of Jesus Christ. We're here this morning worshiping Jesus, calling on his name, thanking God for him because he brought grace and truth. Not only is God holy, not only can we count on that, but we can be forgiven of our sin. Jesus Christ did that when he hung on the cross. 
There is no other way that it could be done. There is no other way that we can escape the truth of God, the law of God, the holiness of God without Christ creating that way. Genomai, it came by him, it was created by him when he hung on that cross and as an innocent man paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, may I just say this is the greatest thing that can happen to a human being. Amen? Amen. Nothing compares to it. There is no greater gulf than between hell and heaven. No greater difference. And Jesus Christ brought that together. Moses could offer you the law, but there's an old saying, the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the difference. That's the work of Jesus Christ. This is the glory of it. When Christ was about to be crucified on the night that he was, the day that he was being crucified, he said to his disciples, you know, I have to go away. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed and die. And his disciples were, 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 were overwrought with anguish, with sadness. And he said to them, listen, the very thing that is making you sad right now will one day be the very same thing that you rejoice over. God gave us permission to rejoice over the cross. Aren't you thankful Christ died for us? Aren't you thankful that he brought grace rather than just truth? Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. It is the glory of Christ that he saved our souls and made a way that we could be saved. For all of eternity, we are going to thank God for that. This is his glory. That the thing that made him so sad when he hung on the cross and died is the very thing that makes them rejoice for all of eternity. Now let's go back to chapter 2. Look again at verse 11. This was the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. By changing the water to wine, he is going to manifest forth the great glory of the grace that he's going to put into the lives of every human being. And that is what caused his disciples to believe on him. Now, just so you understand, when we say his disciples, at this point in time, Jesus only had five disciples. In the book of John, this is the first place that the word disciples is used. A disciple was not just a devotee. A disciple was not just someone that that, that believed in them. A disciple was someone who followed someone so that they could live their entire life the way that person lived their life. I want to be around you in every circumstance that I can learn to live like you live. And at this point in time, he had only five disciples. I know when I do this click, they're all going to come up, but we'll look at them one by one. Go back to chapter one, probably just across the page there, and look instead of 37, look at verse 35. It says, and again the next day after John stood, this is John the Baptist, and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold the Lamb of God. Now he had already said, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. They followed him. So we now have two disciples. Actually, it's Andrew and John that followed him. Now look down at verse 41, or let's go to verse uh, 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonah, and thou shalt be called Cephas, or Peter, which is by interpretation a stone. Okay, now we have three disciples. Now look down at verse 43. And the day following, Jesus would go forth unto Galilee. But before he went, he findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Okay, now we've got four. Now look at verse 45. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now look down just a little bit further to verse 49. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now we come to chapter 2, verse 1. And may I remind you that the divisions of the chapters and the verses are not canonical. God didn't divide them up. This is what man did. So the story that we're looking at now goes straight into chapter 2, verse 1. Look there. And the third day, the third day of what? The third day after he called Nathanael. So he has now five disciples. He hasn't called all 12 just yet. He's called five of them. And as for he called the fifth one, he started walking to Cana. He's down south in Galilee, and he's going to walk up to Cana. If you can see the difference, it's about 65 miles now, they're not going to walk in the straight line that this arrow is because to do that, you've got to go over mountain and mountain and mountain. So they're either going to go west and walk around or they're going to go east and walk up the riverbed and then cut through the divides of the mountain in order to get up to Cana. It's about a two-and-a-half-day journey. So when it says here in chapter 2, verse 1, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana, it's the third day after he called Nathaniel, he's got five disciples with him. They're now headed up to Galilee, to that area, in order that he may be able to attend this wedding. This is the, the understanding of, of, of Scripture to know exactly how many disciples that he had with him. And we can see it takes two days. He would have arrived there sometime in the morning of the third day. Now, Jesus' first miracle in the Bible that, that we're looking at was actually a private sign. It was only known by the five disciples... It was known by the servants and Mary, but probably not many others because it was a sign to his disciples. Mary knew who he was. His disciples believed they knew who he was, and he wanted to show them this is what our ministry is going to be all about. You don't read of this occurrence in any of the other gospels, and I believe that the reason you don't is because none of the other gospel writers were here to witness this. Matthew hadn't been called as, as a disciple yet. Only John of the disciples that wrote a gospel had actually witnessed this occurrence. Therefore, John wrote about it. By the way, it's also interesting that the inner circle for Jesus Christ was Peter, James, and John. Those that witnessed this. Those that believed into Christ from the very beginning. Now, because God specifically de described this event this episode as a sign of Jesus' glory, 
then we know that every detail recorded shows forth some aspect of Christ's ministry. And all of them taken as a whole depict the truth of the glory of his mission. That's why we need to know it. It is going to set the stage in world history that is going to continue for all of eternity. That's why the first miracle is so important. It's the third day. He's walked that far. By the way, the third day is very significant too, isn't it? If you were to look into the Old Testament, in Hosea chapter 6, he told the nation of Israel that they would be healed on the third day. It was the third day, after the third day, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He had been crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose again, proving that he had conquered death. And in the conquering of that death, the nation of Israel, he says, will be healed from your sin. By the way, not just the nation of Israel, every Gentile too, praise God. It's that third day that we're talking about. Jonah, in his messianic prayer in Jonah chapter 2, talks about the fact that in three days he was in the belly of the whale. And then he was, was, was burst forth. He was raised from the dead, if you will. Because being in the belly of the whale, there was nothing but death that he could face. But he was then born again back into the world to serve God. It's that third day. There's great significance to it. And here then is the first hint in this account of the significance of changing the water into wine. It is a miracle of transformation. That's why Christ hung on the cross. For the transformation of this sinful man to a saint, an adopted son of the Holy God. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. And it's all about that for every single human being ever born into this world. Here's the significance of it. Old life taken away, being born again to something that is made better. And not just better in the spirit, in the physical, that's where the picture comes from, but better in the spiritual forever and ever. Now, the occasion of the miracle was a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Eastern weddings, unlike our Western weddings, go on for a lot longer. Even poor people usually celebrated three days. That was the minimum. If you had a lot of money and you were rich, you'd celebrate for seven days. And in that seven days, you would provide the food. You would provide the lodging. You would provide the drink. You would provide the entertainment. It was a celebration that you would call people to. We can surmise that Mary was probably not very wealthy. So it would seem that a three-day celebration was in place. And that's probably what was going on at this time. God tells us another thing about it. Look again at chapter 2, verse 1, and look at the end of it. It says, and the mother of Jesus was there. You know, I find it very interesting we're going to look at it a little bit more later. But do you remember that when Jesus hung on the cross, he gave over the care of his mother to John. He said to John, behold thy mother. And he said to his mother, speaking of John, behold thy son. And, and tradition and history tells us that John took Mary into his home and took care of her as if she were his mother until the day she died. And yet, in the gospel that John wrote, John never uses his name. And he never uses Mary's name. 
He talks about the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he talks about himself. And Mary is always called the mother of Jesus. Her name is never used. Historians believe it was done on purpose, that it was done in humility. That when he began to write this gospel, Mary was there. And he said, I'm not going to use my name in an act of humility. And Mary said, don't use mine either because my name is not important. I'm known by God and that's all that matters. Just a sidelight that I find very interesting that they planned this humble way of doing things and going things. Now, as the wedding goes on, we can see here in, in, in verse 3, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Well, what business is it of Mary's? Except that, evidently, from her solicitude, the mother of Jesus felt some type of responsibility for what was going on at the wedding. Either it was a relative of hers or a, or a close friend or something. But she figures very prominently, and it's likely some people conjecture that it, it might have even been one of Jesus' brothers or sisters that was getting married. If Jesus is now 30 and Joseph did not know Mary until Jesus was born, and the Bible tells us the names of some of his brothers and says he has sisters, it could easily have been any one of the brothers or sisters that came after Jesus. One of them could have been 29 for all we know. But Mary figures very prominently in the organization of the wedding and what's going on and feels a responsibility that, hey, we've run out of drink for our guests. And so she turns to Jesus and, and makes this statement to her. You know, verse 2 tells us Jesus was expected, but it also intimates that the invitation for his disciples was only due to the fact that they came with him. Look at verse 2. Remember how we said it? Jesus was called and his disciples then too, or both, to the marriage. When he left Cana and went down to Galilee, he was alone. Now in just a matter of a couple of days, he has, he's gotten five disciples and they've walked straight back. He left with nobody. He comes back with five disciples. Nobody knew he was coming with five disciples. Nobody could had time to run ahead of them and say, oh, Jesus isn't alone. There's five other men with him. And so when he shows up, obviously being courteous, they say, of course your disciples can come. Maybe if you've been around a big family, you understand how to peel another potato and throw it in the pot, right? You know how to put a little extra water in the soup so everybody gets some. Well, that's what they did. Sure, we've got enough food. We'll make it last. But they couldn't make the drink last. Not any real way to stretch that. Not when you've got six extra mouths that just showed up and we have to be able to take care of them. In these rural settings, of course they would be welcomed. As I said, this is the first time that disciples are mentioned. He leaves alone. He comes back with an entourage. Now, I want you to stop with me for a moment and think of the effect that this must have had on Mary. Mary knew who he was. The angels had told her. She was the one that experienced his miraculous birth. But Mary had been ridiculed almost all her life. Because in order for Christ to be able to present himself as the king of Israel, he had to be adopted into Joseph's line. Joseph was of the regal line. And although the regal line had fallen into disrepute at this time, the people of Israel still kept track of it. Can you imagine when Joseph went to the town hall and said, I want to adopt this child into my line? 
the scandal of people saying, well, you, you must be crazy. Your born son would be the next king. I mean, he's in the kingly line. If the kingship is ever restored as God says it's going to be, it's your child that could be restored. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to adopt this child. And they said, but your wife, she must have played the part of a harlot. If you're not the father, why would you adopt this child? And what did Joseph say? I'm going to adopt this child. And so the curse that was put on Jeconiah in that none of his seed would ever sit on the throne is now circumvented because Jesus wasn't of his seed. The regal line of Israel had been completely disqualified and Jesus had been adopted into that line. By the way, there are approximately 12 writers about Jesus that lived at the time of Jesus. People say if he's a real figure, why didn't people write about him? They did. And some of them wrote extensively. But some of them were his enemies. And there are at least three rabbis who stood against Jesus Christ that called him the bastard. In their writings, they called him that because they knew that he wasn't Joseph's son. And may I just say one more thing? From this time on in Scripture, from the time that Christ is an adult, you never hear of Joseph again. And there's a reason for that. Joseph had to be dead. Jesus could not come and present himself as the king of the Jews if his father was still alive. His father had the right to the throne, not him. Therefore, for him to present himself as the king of the Jews, he had to be in line, ready to take the kingship, which means Joseph had to be off the stage. Throughout all the adult dealings of Jesus in the Gospels, you never hear of Joseph again. Joseph is gone. Mary is now the head of that family. That's why she's the one that figures so prominently in trying to make sure her guests are taken care of and not Joseph. For Jesus to begin his priestly ministry, Joseph had to be off the scene and dead. And so we can understand now why this is going on and why it's taking place in the way that it is taking place. And so Mary, knowing who he is, knowing he's the Son of God, knowing that he is about 30 years old, and knowing that he has come to minister, now realizes when he comes back with five devout men who all believe as she does, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, Mary now knows it is time for him to exert his priesthood, to exert his Saviorhood. Think of her mindset. For 30 years, I have been ridiculed as an unclean woman. For 30 years, I've had to hear the snickers and the talking about how Joseph didn't, didn't, didn't birth our first son. Knowing who he was, having to hold that secret until the time that he revealed himself, she says, now, at last, you're 30 years old, you've been baptized into the ministry, you've got an entourage following you that understands what I understand about you, now is the time for me to be vindicated. Now is the time for me to be able to see that's who my son is. She must have had in her mind, like Jews of that day did, now is the time that you are going to take your rightful place as the king of the Jews. Now you're going to sit on the throne. That's why my husband has passed. Now you're going to show the whole world that I was right, that I was virtuous, that I do love God, that the things that were done to me were done by God for the glory of God and for your help. 
And this must have been uppermost in her mind. Take your rightful place as the Messiah. Now everyone's going to see this is the real son of mine. And so I can imagine when she saw those disciples coming, when she heard their stories, when they said, this is what John the Baptist said about your son, that's why we're following him. You know when he was baptized, the heavens opened up and the voice of God came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he is now beginning his ministry and we're following him. She must have said, oh, thank you, God, at last he's going to show forth who he is. At last, people are going to know the truth. However, being there, the five disciples, it caused a very practical problem. We ran out of wine. Your men have been traveling for some time. They're very thirsty. They're very hungry. All right, we threw a couple potatoes in, but how do you stretch the drink? We have run out of wine. Two or three days celebration, Five extra mouths, don't know what to do. And so she says to Jesus, we need wine. She didn't say, I want you to stand up and manifest yourself and do some glorious, magnificent thing so everybody can see who you are. But it's very clear that to express the need, there was an expectation that he would then take care of that need. She didn't really know how he was going to do it, but however he was going to do it, she thought she would be or he would be glorified and herself vindicated. The account's very clear that she expected Jesus to help. She comes to him with this problem and that's what she wants. Seeing the circumstances, her desires have been awakened as far as showing who he is. Her expectations are now sky high and she is expecting Christ to show forth who he is. This is the time to take the kingdom. This is the time to do it. And in a way, she had a right to expect him to fulfill his destiny. This is what he came for. It's now the time. But he's not going to do it in the way that she thinks she's going to. We clearly understand that this was her expectation from his answer. Look at what he says to her in, in, in verse 4. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. You want me to be glorified right now in such a way that by providing earthly things for people, everyone thinks, wow, that's really great. You can provide earthly things for us like nobody else can do. Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. The time of my glorification is not now. Now, I want you to understand something because a lot of times when we read this in the English, we sort of feel like Jesus was like very curt and rude to his mother. Woman, what have I to do with you? But I want you to understand that that's not true. The word woman there, gune, is a, is a term of respect. It's a term of endearment. In fact, as I mentioned before, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and, and tenderly said to his mother, I want this man to take care of you for the rest of your life, he said, woman, behold thy son. It's the same word, gune. It was not an insult. I realize that today that if some young man calls his mother woman, he needs his ears boxed. But that's not the case there. It was not a rudeness that said that to him. And when he said to her, what have I to do to thee, with thee? He wasn't saying, I'm not going to do what needs to be done. What he is saying is, what does my expectation of what is supposed to happen have to do with the expectation that you have of what is supposed to happen? It was his way of saying, what you're expecting isn't going to be because it's not what I want to be. 
Now is not the time for me to be glorified. Isn't that what he said? Look there again in verse 4. Mine hour is not yet come. Seven times in the gospel of John, Jesus said, Mine hour is not yet come. Seven times when they were trying to glorify him as the king of Israel or something, seven times he said, my hour is not yet come. Let me remind you of one of those. It's in chapter 7. I don't want you to turn there. But the feast is about to take place in Israel. And his brothers, chiding him, said, why don't you go up to the feast? I mean, anyone that wants to be seen and known can't hide away from the public. Go up to the public. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going up. My time has not yet come. He didn't mean he wasn't going up to the feast. He meant I'm not going up to the feast with you, and I'm not going up to the feast to manifest my glory. This is not the time to do that. There is a time that my glory will be manifested. In fact, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit got together, made the plan of salvation, and said, this is what will glorify you. And in glorifying the Son, it will glorify the Father. It was not turning water to wine because an earthly taste needed it. But neither did he say, no, I'm not going to do it. What he was saying is what you expect out of this is not what I'm going to do. What you expect this to accomplish is not what I'm going to let it accomplish. What does my plan have to do with your plan? That's what he was saying. My plan's different than your plan. And you need to understand that. And you see Mary's submission to him. Whoops, I wanted to put out a verse. Jesus said, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. What did he mean by that? The time for Jesus Christ to be glorified was not yet. He's going to be glorified when he hangs on the cross of Calvary. That's the greatest event in the world. That's what we all praise God for. But the disciples' time to be glorified, I'm sorry, his brother's time to be glorified was at any time. Why is that? Because there's nothing that is more glorious or lifts a person up higher than to accept Christ as their Savior. And you can do that anytime. If you're here this morning and have never accepted Christ as Savior, you're missing out on the greatest event that could ever happen to you. And it could happen to you today. It could happen to you right now. The time for man to be glorified and get his sin taken away and enter into a relationship with, his, with a holy heavenly father is any time you're ready to accept Christ. The time for Christ to be glorified was when he was going to hang on that cross. So my time's not now, but your time always is. And by the way, in chapter 17 of the book of John, Jesus is at the last supper with his disciples. Now remember, to the Jewish society, the day began at sundown. We say it begins at midnight. They say it begins at sundown. And the day runs from sundown to sundown. On this particular day, as the sun went down, Jesus went into an upper room and had the Last Supper with his disciples. Sometime early in the morning, what we call the morning, but was their day, because it started at sundown, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane where a cohort of soldiers and palace guards came and arrested him. He was then taken to trial to the Sanhedrin. He was then taken before Pilate after they condemned him. And sometime around between 6 and 9, those two trials took place. At nine o'clock, sometime before 9 o'clock, Pilate said, do with him what you want. He was beaten, and at 9 o'clock, he was hung on the cross. 
He died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the very hour, by the way, that the Passover lambs were to be killed. They hastily embalmed him by putting flowers and fragrant uh, plants around him and, and, and put him into a, a sepulcher that was nearby because they didn't have time because the new day was about to start. When did the new day start? Sundown. So in that one day, he had the Last Supper, he prayed in Gethsemane, he was arrested, he was tried, he was condemned, he was crucified, and he was buried all in the same day. And this is the day we're talking about in chapter 17. It's that day. And he says to his disciples on that time, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Now the hour is. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. Jesus Christ was glorified for all people by hanging on the cross and paying for our sin. And in doing that, God the Father is glorified. Thank you, Father, that you provided a way. Thank you, Christ, that you came. But forever and ever, we will thank you that you are holy and without compromising your holiness, you made a way that you could give grace to a sinner like me. There's nothing more glorious in all of existence than that truth. When grace and truth were created when Christ came into this world and hung on the cross. No, changing some water to wine is not going to be the pinnacle. It's not going to be the glory that Mary wanted. It's going to have to come later. And Mary had to learn a very painful lesson, namely that Jesus was committed to God the Father's time pain. He was committed to the will of God the Father, even though she was his earthly mother. What God wants. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit determined that Christ's hour at his first coming would be when he was lifted up on the cross, when he would be able to draw all men to him. But as I said, that what do I have to do with thee is just a simple way of saying to her, you don't understand what's going on, and it's not going to happen the way you think it is. What I will do will not accomplish what you're hoping it accomplishes, even though I'm going to help you. He didn't say he wasn't going to help her. Even though I'm going to help you, it is not going to do what you want it to do because the time is not right. And that's exactly what he said to her. Mine hour is not yet come. The hour of glory did not come until he paid the penalty for our sin. And we will glorify him forever and ever because he did that for us. So Mary's response to the servants really is a, a submission to her son. Look at what she says here in verse uh, 5. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, just do it. It'll be fine. I trust he'll help. Maybe she's a little disappointed. But she says, it's okay. Just do what he says do. Because I know what he says to do is what's going to be right. Now verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now you understand, it doesn't tell us where these pots were. But generally they were on the outside of the house or just on the inside of the house. Outside on a porch or inside in a, in a, a, a foyer if you will. And what these spots were for is the Jews said, now this wasn't a law from God. This was something that the Jews demanded, the leadership of the Jewish nation. 
When you've walked down a dusty road, you have to wash your feet off and you have to wash your hands before you eat. And if you don't, they raise you to the level that you are morally impure. God never raised it to that level, but they did. If you can't learn to wash your hands, then you are less than moral. But these pots are sitting here. And everyone knows what they're used for. And because the, the wedding is going on, they're probably sitting there empty at this time. And it says that they are, if, 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 if we look here, um, containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, a firkin is an English measurement of a barrel. If you look at that little one on the, on the first, on the right there, that's a firkin. Two or three of them, as it goes up, would be the runlet. It would be 18 to 22 gallons. That's what each one of them was like. And if you put all of them together, it would have been this big one up here called the butt, 126 gallons. It would have been about 130, 135 gallons. That's how much wine he is about to make. But he did it in, in six pots. Why six? Five disciples, one Savior. Six people showed up at the feast. And he says, okay, I'll provide for my guests. I'll provide for everyone because I brought these guests. And it's our responsibility to make sure that people are taken care of. And so, Jesus, not denying his mother, says that's what we're going to do. Now, I want to back up just a minute and remember what we said. That the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Think of that. The only changing of water that Moses ever did was he changed the water to what? Blood. He changed the water to blood as a sign of judgment because that's all the law can do. The law can only condemn. Jesus Christ, which grace and truth came from, is going to change the water to wine. Now let me take a quick digression here. When I say wine... Don't take your 21st century mindset in America of what wine is and say he's serving them alcohol. Actually, what would happen in any devout Jewish household is when you squeezed grapes, you got the good wine because there was no word for anything that had to do with the vine other than wine, oinos. They didn't have a word grape. When they made grape jelly, they called it wine. When they made raisins, they called it wine. When they made grape juice, they didn't have the word grape. They called it wine. So to say, well, he served them wine and, and use your 21st mindset, meaning that's alcoholic drink, is completely, uh, not, it's completely wrong is what it is. When the wine was brought to, the, to, the, to the, the governor of the feast, he said, well, this is the good stuff, meaning the sweet wine that had just been squeezed. Because what would happen is when you squeezed wine and you put it in a cask, you put a date on it, sort of, and after a certain amount of time, in order to keep it from being alcoholic, you would cut it with three parts of water. After a certain time after that, you cut it with ten parts of water. Didn't taste as sweet, didn't taste as good, but it was not alcoholic. When he brought them the good wine, it was the grape juice. Fresh, sweet, uncut at this point. Then after they drink all the good stuff, then you bring them out the stuff that doesn't taste quite as good because you had to cut it with water. That's the idea of what's going on here. So don't, don't, don't fall for it when people say, well, Jesus served wine. It's a little bit more involved than just that. 
And you have to think of it from the mindset of the first century rather than thinking of the mindset of the 21st century here in America. You know, sometimes I've been in foreign countries and they say to me, you're showing your Americanism. Don't show your Americanism in this, all right? All right, the aside's over. Let's go on. Verse 7. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Wherever they were set, he's overseeing it. Mary is there with him. Verse 8. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And when they drew it out, it, be, it was wine. In fact, it was sweet wine. And when the ruler of the feast, he's the caterer, had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, then the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth the good wine. What's the definition of the good wine? It is not the wine that can get you drunk. The good wine is the sweet wine that's just been squeezed out. That's what you were supposed to serve first, and instead you saved it for last. That's a faux pas socially, but it's extremely important when we see who it is that was doing it. And so, at verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 10, he saith the name, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. That's a phenomenal truth. Remember what we said before? The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I want to, in closing, just show you a couple things about grace and a couple things about truth that this story brings out to us so that we can finally pull it together and answer it and understand it. The first thing I want you to know is about grace. He said here, fill it to the brim. He actually just said fill it in our English, right? Look at verse 7. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. The word fill is gamadzai. Gamadzai literally means fill fully. If he had just said put water in him, it would have been gemo. But he didn't say that. He said gamadzo, which meant fill them as full as you can fill them. And that's why the, the, the servants did that. It says in verse 7, and they filled them up to the brim. They did exactly what he said them to do. And I want you to understand that this is a, a lesson that God wants every Christian to have. At another portion of Scripture, Jesus said this, The thief cometh not but for to steal and kill and destroy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. That word is pirosas. And it literally means exceedingly abundantly above anything that you could expect. Before I was a Christian, I never would expect that I could be adopted into the family of God and every sin I'd done be taken away and to be welcomed into the presence of a holy father and to be blessed with heaven for all of eternity. But don't you understand? That's why Christ came. That's his relationship to you if you have accepted him as Savior. I've come that you might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The Bible says, He that spared not his only son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him give us all good things? How could you ever doubt that God thinks well towards you when you realize that he sent his son to die in your place? This was the mission of Christ. This is what hanging on the cross, this is what coming to earth, this is what everything he did in his whole life is all about. That he wants to bless you 
abundantly and far above anything that you could ever imagine. The scriptures tell us that eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. It is beyond our comprehension how much God loves us and how because his son died in our place, he has nothing but goodwill toward us. And that's something that you need to believe. We just sang about that. It's something that you have to grab hold of. God loves you more than galaxies of new created beings. When man sinned, he didn't say, I'm just going to wipe him out and make a new creature. He said, no, I'm going to work with man because I love him. And I'm going to be glorified in man because I'm going to provide a way for truth and grace to anyone who will come to me. Because it is my desire, God says, to bless you far above what you could ever imagine. Think about that for just a moment. God has annexed joy into every action of life. So that if you have a healthy body and a healthy mind, you eat, drink, walk, talk, sleep, interact, everything with notes of pleasure. It's pleasurable after a day to lay down and go, mm. ever just thank God for a warm bed and a roof that doesn't leak and the things that he does for you that way? Everything of life, it was designed to bring us pleasure. And now because of our sin and the deterioration of our bodies, sometimes it's not that way. But that was the way God created it to be and through Jesus Christ, that is how it's going to be in the life of all of his children. Forget the earthly stuff. We're talking about the eternal home. And God wants you to know that. He has given us wondrous variety in taste, in color, in sensation, in thrills that touch every aspect of our life. And through holiness, he has given us the capacity to enjoy it to the maximum capacity. This is why Jesus came. Secondly, I want you to look at verse 8. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. You know, everything we do, if you look under grace at number two, it's us with God's touch. If you left it up to me, I would do ordinary, commonplace, normal activity. But let God come into the picture and touch it and use that, and it can become the greatest thing that could ever happen. I could stand and talk all day to people about things that have nothing to do with Christianity and what good does it do. But God, when you touch it and allow me to speak of the things of Christ, souls get saved, people get changed. That's how God wants to work. His grace says, I will work through you. And the things that you experience that are mundane in this life, I'll make them special. I'll make them great. If you are a Christian that is bored, let me tell you why you're bored. Because you're not engaging for the battle. When people don't care about winning souls, Christianity can become hard. Always trying to be right, always having to smile, always trying to be good. But when you're engaged in the battle for souls, life becomes exciting. There's a mission for why we're here. If God wanted fellowship and that's all, as soon as you got saved, he'd just take you to heaven. But God says, I have a mission, and I'm going to use you to do it. You're going to use me? 
But I'm one of the worst sinners there's ever been. Exactly why I can use you. Because you know the depth of God's love. You know what forgiveness of sin is all about. And I want you to be a witness and go out there and tell people. If you're here this morning and just saved, if you don't hardly know any doctrine at all, you know this. Once I was lost and now I'm found. Once I was blind and now I see. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Thank you, God, for allowing us to be in this ministry. Thank you, God, for allowing us to take a part in that. When we come and worship, I appreciate that you wanted to, 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 to prepare your hearts and be right because what you're asking for is God touch our time. Help us worship you in a manner that pleases you and touches our hearts. It's not commonplace. It's not the ordinary. When Christ touches it, it's much more. And that's exactly what he does with human beings. He wants to work in your life and through your life that your life would be the most fulfilling existence that you could ever possibly imagine. Not because you have to go out and win a million souls. Not because you have to be some great evangelist. But because right there where you are in your life, God can use you to win souls. You may not save the whole world, but you will save somebody's whole world. And that's all that God asks you to do. In whatever capacity you are called. One theologian said it this way. He bade his disciples distribute the bread. He directed the blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam. And on this occasion, though he might have dispensed with the assistance of the servants, he chose to make use of their agency both in filling the water pots and in pouring out from them the draughts that might be borne to the master and to the guests. He takes the common and makes it magnificent. Let me tell you what happened to me. Because I'm common, it may not mean much to you, but when Christ touched my life, I became a child of the King destined for eternity there's no greater thing that can happen to any human being ever this is what this miracle wants us to see not only does God want to bless but he gives us that being and blesses us by working through us these commonplace activities these humdrum things are touched with a new power and when they are it makes them fragrant and flavorful and enjoyful and delightful and fulfilling in our hearts. God wants to use us and decides to use us with other things. Now look at truth. Look at verse 10. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Do you understand that that's what God's doing? However much you love the Lord, and I trust that you do, however much he touches your heart, however great your private prayer time may be, we don't look back on our experiences. We look to the future. One day I will see him face to face. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that one day we're going to be standing in heaven and we're going to look at each other and go, we're here. We're actually here. Here it is. Man, isn't it great? We're going to stand there one day and say that to each other. As we're standing in heaven. It's in the future, right? God truly has saved the best for last. He truly has saved the best for last because then, even though we see through a glass darkly now, we will see him as he is and he will see us as we are. There's not a thing on this earth that's going to compare to what we have and experience in heaven. God's saving the best for last. Oh, I didn't mean that he doesn't encourage you here. He doesn't help you here. He doesn't empower you here. He doesn't make life enjoyable here. I, I didn't mean that at all. 
I just meant stop and think for a minute. God loves you so much that what you experience that's pleasurable in this world does not compare to what it's going to be in the world to come. Doesn't compare. And do you understand? That's why Christ died on the cross. That transformation that is going to take place. And that's why the changing of the water to wine was a sign of what the ministry of Jesus Christ will accomplish in our life if we would accept him as Savior. It's beyond understanding, but God chooses to bless. And that's what it's all about. This token, this revelation of truth, this sign. It's all about the transformation that is brought about by God. That that is the ministry of Christ. That's why he was born. That's why he died on Calvary. And that's why we, his sinful creatures, could be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Because he does it all. I don't know if you know Jeremiah 29, 11. If you don't know it, look it up and memorize it. I recommend every Christian know this verse. Because Satan's going to come to you and he's going to say, you know, there's all kinds of trouble in your life and God must not like you. But it's a lie. Jeremiah 29, 11, God is speaking. He says, I know the thoughts that I think to you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. To bring you to an end and an expectation. God says, I'm not looking to give trouble into your life. Now, I admit that sometimes trouble comes into Christians' lives. And when I think of that, I always go back to one of the most astounding verses in all of the Bible that I'd like to close with. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. In Acts chapter 8, the discussion is how persecution broke out at the church at Jerusalem. People were arrested. Some were killed. Their property was confiscated. Heartache like we can't believe, like we've never had to experience. Thank you if you're a veteran. And, and it says in, in verse 4, Therefore, these that were scattered went everywhere preaching the gospel. Now, can you imagine that scene? One of these that has lost his home, lost his family, goes up to someone and says, God loves you, and Christ died for you, and I want to tell you that. And the person answers back and says, wait just a minute. You lost your home. You were kicked out of your country. Everything in your life seems to be a mess, and you're telling me that God loves you? What's the answer? Yes, God loves me. Yes, and he is working through me. And I am here and have experienced all of that that I might be used of God to give to you the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We say in our church all the time, if life makes it that you end up in a ditch, it's probably because there's someone in the ditch God wants you to witness to. Take the things that God gives to you. Trust him that he's always good. The whole purpose of Christ's coming was your transformation from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And everything that happens in there, God can use. God doesn't look for whiny baby Christians. Oh God, you've got to make me feel good. You've got to pat me on the rear end and make everything nice. God looks for soldiers, Christians that are mature enough to say, send me to the front, send me to danger, send me wherever you need to send me that I can tell people that God loves them and Christ died for them. And that I can say to them, all the proof I need is the transformation that God did in my life. Because I was just water in pots made for washing. And Christ turned me into the sweetest wine that you could ever imagine. And that transformation and change will go on forever and ever. That's what Christ wanted you to know.
That's why he did what he did. And that's why as great as that is, it's not the greatest glorification of Christ. But it is the most wonderful truth that they could be. That's why he told them that at first. And when they saw it, and they realized that this was the Son of God, this was the blessing of God, and that the glory of God would be when he was lifted up, they believed on him. They believed into him, pistuo ice. They trusted him completely. And brothers and sisters, that's what you have to get a handle on if you're ever going to live right for Christ. God loves me. And God can use me no matter what my circumstances are. And one day, we're going to be translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And every difficulty that we've ever had is going to be worth it. The reward that we have, we will say, truly, God saved the best for last. Warriors is what he wants. Warriors is what he calls us to be. And if you're here this morning and you've never prayed to receive Christ as Savior, I don't know what would hold you back. God loves you. God sent his son to die on the cross that not only would the truth of God hold this universe together for eternity, but the grace of God could be given in your heart right now. I know the world is full of heartache. I know the world is full of sin. I know that there's not a Christian alive that at one time or another hasn't done something hypocritical. So what? It doesn't change the truth that God loves you and sent his son to die for your sin. And it is the greatest transformation that a human being can ever have. Amen? Amen. Thank you.